Next week, when Pastor Bruce comes, he has actually um, tailored his message and got involved in the same path that we are. And uh, he's actually going to be preaching, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but he's preaching on the gates of hell because he's been there. Now, I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally. There is actually a place in Israel which is uh, supposed to be the the place that is referenced uh, with the gates to hell, and Bruce has been there. So I'm excited about next week because he's he's got slides and everything. Um, Possibly video. Who knows? Um, But anyway, let's continue on. Uh, I'm going to ask Michelle to come up and uh, actually read the passage of Mark that I will be preaching from this morning. So give her a warm welcome as she comes. Okay, I'm reading from Mark 8, 1 to 26. Jesus feeds 4,000. About this time, another large, large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have had nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, How are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, How much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves thanked God for them and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Pharisees demand a miraculous sign. It's a miraculous sign. It was Jesus. (laughs) When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to, prefer, to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. Yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. Jesus heals a blind man. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. 
Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, Don't go back into the village on your way home. Thank you, Michelle. Am I, am I on here? Testing one, two, yes. There was one thing I thought, apart from the rude interruption, which I apologise. Um, when Michelle was reading that, I thought, here is somebody who is involved heavily in early childhood education. Did, did you feel the, 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 the calming effect of how Michelle was reading? Okay, little people, sit there, listen, I'm going to speak clearly and enunciate, pay attention, or else. <laughs> it's very good, Michelle. I, I, can, I can see how she does well at that. So, okay, who, who feels that was a lot to take in? Because, well, I did. It's a, it's a fairly big, and it seems so all over the place. Jesus is doing all sorts of different things in this passage. But it's an important one because, and spoiler alert here if you haven't read ahead, we're fast approaching the time where the disciples get this revelation, or at least Peter does, about who Jesus really is. And so Jesus, another spoiler, Jesus knows this. Just saying. And so here we have a series of incidents in the, in the life of Jesus, and it's fairly fast-moving, but we see, we see his attitudes change quite dramatically. First of all, he's compassionate towards a crowd of people. Then he gets to meet with the Pharisees, and he gets annoyed. And then he's back on the boat with the disciples, and he gives them a warning. He's obviously concerned about them. But straight after the warning, he gets ticked off with the disciples. And then he gets off the boat, and he's compassionate again because he meets a blind man, and he heals him. So there's a lot going on, that, and it's very easy for us to think, well, these are just different stories that Mark's got together, and he thought, well, I don't know where to put these, so let's just chuck them in here. Because I don't, I don't know about you, who's got a sense of deja vu here? Jesus is feeding 4,000. You sort of think, now has Mark got his stories mixed up here? Is it just the first one, but he's sort of attacked it from a different angle? Or, you know, there were two different eyewitness report so they thought well they're fairly different let's put them in two different places and just pretend that you know something different happened no this is all in here for a purpose and a reason mark hasn't put these in by accident and jesus isn't doing these things at random they are all tied together and it's all very important for us so what ties it all together so let's start from the beginning Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, we've got this story that seems to be a repeat of Mark chapter 6. And it says, About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. So it's again. So they're acknowledging this has happened before. So it's not a different eyewitness report of the first one. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. 
If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied. It's interesting. See, his disciples have learnt something. They said, they said, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them in this wilderness? And Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? I don't know how much you remember about this first incident. But this is becoming slightly different. And I'll explain in a moment. Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples, who distributed the bread to the crowd. And a few small fish were found, too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the, type, the disciples to distribute them. So something is actually different about this situation compared to the one we read about in chapter 6. For a start, it's Jesus who mentions the hungry crowd, not the disciples. If you remember the 5,000, the disciples came to Jesus and said, you've got all these people out here and they're hungry. Here, Jesus has suddenly turned to the disciples and said, all these people out here, I'm feeling a bit sorry for them because they've come a long way and, and they're hungry. And this starts warning bells going in the minds of the disciples because they're not, they're thick, but they're not that silly. And so they're thinking, hang on, we've been here before. And so their faith isn't, fully mature so instead of saying well what do you expect us to do about it they they know what's possible but they're not really sure what they can do so they throw it back at Jesus probably a sensible thing I mean if, if you're not sure but you've seen him do it before so it's a it's not a question of well, what the heck can we do it's a question of what do you expect us to do how are we going to find food in the, this wilderness and so Jesus asked the question, and in some ways I think they're hoping for this. He says, how much bread have you got? And the disciples are almost like, phew, okay, we know this bit. And they say, seven loaves. Notice in the first one he said, how much bread have you got? And they said, we don't know. He said, go and find out. Here, seven loaves. They've, they've, <laughs> Jesus is probably going to do this thing again. So go and find out how much bread we got. So th their faith, they, they know something's happening. They know that Jesus is capable of feeding these people and so they defer to him they already know how much bread they've got and they've got it there and so they give it to Jesus and he starts to break it and distribute it the interesting thing is the fish seems to be a bit of a random extra in here but that's also important because see they find these fish they hadn't gone looking for those but they immediately bring them to Jesus so that he can multiply them there's none of this oh fish but there's only five of them let's forget that they're, they're with the program there's five fish, let, oh, let's grab these, give them to Jesus. No question, their faith is at a certain level where they can see Jesus do things. They're not questioning that anymore. And so Jesus feeds these 4,000 people. And again, same as the first time, heaps of leftover food. Now this is actually important. I don't know what you think about when you think of leftover food. Because when I first read this, I've got to admit, my picture was a bit like when I have friends round in the evening and we order in pizza. And at the end of the evening, you go round and you collect all the pizza boxes and they are full of discarded olives, slices of pepperoni, crusts of chewed pizza lying around in all the boxes. And if you're really lucky, you might find an uneaten piece that you can eat for breakfast. Cold. Some people say that's great. I actually personally hate that idea. Um, 
And that, that's the sort of impression I got, that he sent the disciples around to pick up the scraps. Did anybody else sort of get the same picture? But it actually says here, it's leftover food. Food that had not been touched, that Jesus had multiplied. There were pieces of bread. He'd multiplied so many of them that the crowd couldn't eat them all. It wasn't just that they'd picked out the good bits and left the crust. Or sort of, there were, there were those fish things you see in cartoons, the head, the tail and the skeleton in the middle. It wasn't that. These were whole fish and chunks of bread that Jesus had torn off and, and multiplied. And they collected seven large baskets of these. So there was a lot of food left over. And it was food. It wasn't scraps, it was food. So that's, that's important. Just bear that in mind for the next bit. So we've, we've seen that there's a development happened here. It looks as though it's the same as the first one, but there's a slight change. And suddenly, Jesus takes a boat ride. Okay, done that. Go home. You're all fed. I want to go and visit my friends, the Pharisees. So he crosses the lake, and immediately they hear he's there, and they come, and Mark 8, 11 tells us that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to have a good time with him. Well, in their language, it probably was. They started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit. So he might not have actually done it on the surface. <gasps> Face plant. Um, who knows? Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them and crossed to the other side of the lake. Now I sort of imagine that the disciples are following him. And it's, it's like a bit of a rush. He sort of rushes in, he sits down talks to the Pharisees, gets up and rushes back to the boat and the disciples are like, whoa, whoa, hang on, whoa. And they're following him back to the boat. It's like, whoa, but we've only just come out of the boat. Why are we getting back in the boat? Where are we going? Off the other side of the lake again. It's like, it's dinner time. And they, they get in the boat and they're a bit mystified and suddenly Jesus turns to them. And it says here, he, he warns them about the Pharisees and Herod. And he likens them, likens them to yeast in a loaf of bread. Now, I don't know how, 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 who's made bread here. Who knows that most of the bread is not made up of yeast? You actually only have to add a small amount of yeast to get the bread to rise. And so Jesus warns them of the Pharisees in this way. And it must have struck a chord because it starts off by saying the disciples, and this is verse 14, had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Notice he throws Herod in there as well. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples something here. He's trying to teach us something here. There are both worldly and spiritual distractions which separate us from Jesus. The mention of the yeast seems to spark an argument among the disciples. They're sitting there, they're hungry, they're looking at this one loaf of bread and suddenly Jesus mentions yeast. And it's on for young and old. They're all sitting there, all 12 of them, looking at this loaf of bread thinking, how many ways can we cut that? And, oh, I'm starving, there's not going to be enough for this. And so they start arguing. You know, who didn't bring the food? Who, who's in charge of catering this week? Who's on the roster? Why didn't you bring... 
more bread. Now, this is really weird. And let's, let's just read what happens. Because as soon as they start to argue, Jesus overhears them and starts to chastise them for their lack of faith. And it says in verse 16, At this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? And so suddenly he's turned a loaf of bread into a philosophical question. You have ears. Can't you hear? You have... Oh, hang on. Let's go back. Don't you... Are your hearts too hard to take it in? I mean, if you're hungry and you're arguing about a loaf of bread and Jesus suddenly said, are your hearts too hard to take it in? It's sort of like, um, it's bread, Jesus. Um, I don't want it to go into my heart. I want it to go into my stomach. Don't change the subject. And then he goes on, you have eyes, can't you see? And I can imagine them thinking, I'm looking at the bread. What's he talking about? You have ears, can't you hear? It's sort of like, is he going to do this healing the ears thing again? or what, What's happening? Don't you remember anything at all? Now he's attacking M- M- memory. When I fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? They relax a bit. Oh, it's a memory test. <laughs> we know, I know that one. 12, 12, 12. Jesus, here, pick me, pick me, pick me. 12. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven. They said, seven. We know that. We know the answer. Seven. He said, don't you understand yet? Now, when I fed this, read this through the first time, I, I, I'm thinking, I don't blame him. I don't understand what he's going on about. I, I'm, I'm confused here. He's talking about bread and then, then it's philosophy and their lack of faith and understanding where does it all tie in but then i read it again if you don't understand the first time read it again and when you look at this passage of scripture when you tie all of these situations in together you can see that jesus is teaching them about faith their lack of understanding and their lack of faith is apparent on two levels here and he's trying to teach them through one level about the second the first level of faith is a physical level and he's using real world physical examples to teach them about faith he's just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread now if you're one of the disciples and you're there there are two logical consequences to this Jesus has just commented that there were seven large baskets of leftovers wouldn't you think the disciples might have even just brought one of them with them what did they do with the seven basket jesus has provided for this crowd they are there and they just do not avail themselves of jesus provision i mean a logical thing was look there's seven of these baskets left over let's take one let's just put it on the boat and save it for later but they didn't they didn't even think that they weren't even looking at what Jesus had done in a general sense. They just thought, Jesus loved these people and he fed them. Neat. Really good. Yeah, okay, let's go and see the Pharisees. They didn't, they didn't think that. And even greater, an even more 
obvious thing that they had said. They had seen Jesus feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. There they were, 12 disciples sitting in a boat with one loaf of bread. Do you think that Jesus could have multiplied enough bread to feed the disciples if they'd asked him? What the heck were they thinking? They're sitting there staring at a loaf of bread thinking, I wonder what we can do with that. It's a loaf of bread, there's not enough. What are we going to do? I'm hungry. There's, there's not, I hate you all. I want all the loaf of bread for me. And Jesus is sitting there saying, Hello, hello, Jesus here, Son of God, multiplication, feeding, seven, seven baskets of leftover, 12 baskets of leftover, loaf of bread. Anybody, anybody, loaf of bread? No. Right over their heads. So he, he's using physical examples. He's showing them the power of God in a physical sense. We often just spiritualize God too much. Say, yeah, well, it's, it's all right. God's a spiritual being. I don't expect God to do anything for me on this physical earth or to, to do any physical miracles in my life or to provide for me physically. Loaf of bread, 4,000. Hello. Jesus provides for our physical needs. And he's trying to teach this. Jesus wasn't being random with his miracles. It wasn't like, oh, good grief, 5,000 people have turned up. Let's just, let's just give him a bit, see what we can do. He, I mean, if you read here, Jesus knew how many baskets of leftovers there were. He even knew the size of the baskets. The first time they used little baskets, the second time they were big baskets. And why do you think Jesus wasn't anal? He, he wasn't just note-taking, let's get this right, let's get large baskets. For he was actually teaching. Every miracle that Jesus performed was actually to teach people things about faith. <coughs> he was being deliberate in his actions. He deliberately went and antagonized the Pharisees. He picked a fight. He knew what they were going to say. He knew that it wasn't going to be what he wanted to hear. But he wanted to show the disciples something about the second level of faith. Because, of course, the second level of faith is spiritual. He, he wanted them to get a spiritual understanding of what they were capable of with the Spirit of God in them. Because guess what? Another spoiler alert. He is grooming these men to take over a worldwide organization that he is going to call the church. Just thought I'd let you know. And he's looking at them thinking, good grief, this is not going well. The training course I've got them in is just not getting through. And so he takes and he, he warns them about the insidious effect of the Pharisees and Herod. Because the Pharisees are the establishment, if you like, of the spiritual culture of the Jews. And all of these people were Jews. Jesus hadn't ministered or, or had in his, in his leadership anybody who wasn't a Jew at that point. They were Jewish people. And so they had looked to the Pharisees all their life for their direction in a spiritual sense. And we, and we know that the Pharisees were caught up with the letter of the law and they killed the spirit of the law. And so Jesus is trying to get these people to think 
about their relationship with God without being concerned about their relationship with the law because the law was killing the relationship with God. And they were saying, you don't have to have much to do with the Pharisees before they'll destroy your faith. Who's discovered that it doesn't take much, doesn't take too many people who come and doubt your faith or argue with you about your principles to put doubt into your mind? It doesn't require a whole army. Sometimes it just requires one. You're not one of those people who tithes in church, eh? That's a rip-off, that is. It's a rort. Church just wants your money. You don't believe in God. Science has proved that God doesn't exist. You're an idiot. Little comments like that. Oh, no, Christianity is too restrictive. You should, you should have enlightenment. You should meditate. You should take up an Eastern religion. Strangely enough, Christianity is an Eastern religion. But. So... It's a warning to the, the disciples that if they're going to they're lead this thing he calls the, is going to call the church, they're going to have to be wary of little things that distract them from their relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's true enough today. Herod, and he, it's sort of almost as a, a sideline, he throws Herod in. Because Herod enforced the cultural and political law of the land. And he distracted the Jews, including those now following Jesus, because the disciples were Jews, from the culture that God wanted them to follow. Because who knows, what, what did the Jews want Jesus to do? They wanted him to lead a revolution. They wanted him to overthrow the government. They wanted him to be a, a sort of a military and, and political leader. And Jesus said, no, don't let... That sort of thing distracts you from the fact that your core purpose, your core engagement with God is, is relationship-based. We're actually called to have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. And that's it. And so Jesus was saying, look, don't get distracted by this whole thing about you know, uprisings and, and Roman oppressors and all of that. That's, that's not the deal here. You're not called to be those people. And so this, this whole message is actually centered on grooming the disciples for leadership of the church. Because they're it. When Jesus dies, that's it. There's 12 of them. They don't have the physical presence of Jesus anymore. It's up to them. And guess what? If it's up to us, we're not going to get very far. It's actually up to the fact that we recognize that the spirit of god is in us that the word of god is guiding us and we are called not to be distracted from that so what does it mean to a 21st century christian is that you 21st or real 20th century christians still still living in the past haven't caught up with uh, millennials post-millennials pre-22nd century millennials whatever what does it mean for us? Well, guess what? We're under spiritual attack. If you thought that we weren't, sorry, you've had your head stuck somewhere. We are living in an increasingly godless world. People look to government for provision rather than God. Our whole society is based on the fact that if things go wrong, the government will provide. People don't tend to, to believe that God is going to provide. Worldly culture and morality 
is sneaking into our churches. And just like the little bit of yeast, that small injection of distraction is causing a large change in the way we think. It's causing diluted faith. We're actually relying less on our faith in God and more on the ideas that are being brought in by outside sources. We need to know what God is saying to us personally and in his word. Jesus, in feeding these people, in showing the disciples what he was capable of, was actually cementing into them the idea that their relationship with him was more powerful than their petty squabbles, more powerful than their hunger, more powerful than the distractions of the world. And he was trying to get them to see all they had to do was ask. But they had to ask the right person. They had to ask Jesus. But they didn't. They were spiritually distracted by and being bombarded by things that distracted them from what they were seeing. They were seeing, I mean, I have never personally seen one man stand there with seven loaves of bread and distribute them so that they could feed 4,000 people. I think I would be pretty amazed. I would think that there was something special about this person. And yet, you know, today, if somebody did that, what would we think? Magician. It's all done with mirrors. There's a TV camera hidden somewhere, or it's, it's all done for reality TV. Where are the cameras? Come on. Come on, you can't fool me. This is all being filmed, isn't it? Our cynicism is so strong that it destroys our faith. I mean, and we see that with the Pharisees. They say to Jesus, prove it. But who knows? I mean, if, if, if we said Jesus came here today and stood here and, and he said, look, I'm Jesus, we said, prove it. And he did it miracles. The, the, the sad fact is that we wouldn't believe it because we'd say, well, okay, yeah, look pretty good, but show us how it's done. <laughs> you know, go, go on to Netflix and there's that program about debunking the magicians. Yeah, breaking the magician's code. Come on, Jesus, break the code. Tell us how it's really done. Come on. Come on, it's a trick, isn't it? We wouldn't... I mean, our hearts are so hardened to this sort of thing. We suspect a trick in everything because that's how the world works. I mean, don't get me started on reality TV. It's all scripted anyway. There's nothing real about it. But it's, it actually influences people. People think that is the real world. They think Facebook is real. They think that people's lives on Facebook are how their lives are in reality. But who knows, only, people only ever put their best on Facebook. If, or for certain people I know, they just put their worst on Facebook. <laughs> uh, defriend those people. So spiritually, we're under attack. And we need to learn the lessons that the disciples learn to actually stop that from diluting our faith or even destroying our faith. We need to know that we can hear from Jesus himself. And we need to know that the word of God is actually what we need to keep us on track. The culture of the church is under attack. Now, we've just had an election. Who knows what's happening there? It's still up in the air. But it actually has repercussions for the church. You know, Nick Xenophon's got back in. He's all for turning church into a business and taking away its uh, charitable concessions uh, all sorts of things could change but the, the, 
the thing I really hate, Jesus isn't going to destroy your political opponents. I know you were helping, you were hoping that that might be the case. But I've got really bad news for you. Jesus loves your political opponents. He loves everybody who's against you just as much as he loves everybody who's for you. He has actually given us a task not to hate the people against us, but to love them. And he has given us a task to bring the whole world to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Even those who don't want to, who don't believe, who have no interest. He, he says, did I ask you to make a value judgment? I gave you a command. Go out and spread the gospel to everything that lives and breathes and can understand what you're saying. He didn't say, just pick the ones who agree with you. In fact, he said, look, go out and find the ones that don't. And let me tell you from my experience, if you're going to talk about faith in Jesus Christ to somebody, pick somebody who hates the idea, not somebody who's lukewarm. Changing a lukewarm person's mind is so hard. But somebody who hates strongly can love strongly. Because the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Because apathetic people are apathetic. And pathetic. I mean, if you've got somebody who's passionate about something, that's far better, even if it's passionate about something that you are not passionate about and, in fact, stand against. If they're passionate, you can work with it. There's going to be opposition to our faith and our point of view and our arguments aren't going to convince people that we're right. Who likes to argue? Forget it. Your arguments are not going to convince people you are right. Or those that they do convince you're right are just susceptible to be convinced the other way tomorrow. Our faith is the only thing that will show people that God is real. Moving in our faith will show people that God is real. Standing on the word of God. Showing people that our lives are different because the word of God runs through our life the power of the Holy Spirit is apparent in our life our life is different because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ we do not want Jesus coming to us and asking the question don't you get it because that's what he asked the disciples you've seen all of this you know who I am you're about very soon to tell me who I am. Don't you get it? Why are you letting this stuff distract you? And that's our call for today. Why are we letting this stuff distract us? Because you see, as Christians, especially in Australia, we've gone through the last 100 years being a driving force in this nation. The Christian church, Christian voices, even our parliament is based on Christian principles. They pray when they begin parliament, the Lord's Prayer. Mind you, they haven't changed from the King James version of it. And the, the big, I mean, not that I have a problem with the King James version. But the thing is, if you're going to get people into parliament and you're going to get them to pray, you need to get them to pray something you're going to understand. 
because you're getting people who haven't been brought up in a Christian household, haven't been brought up with Christian ethos, and they come to Parliament and suddenly, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Even hallowed be thy name. I mean, as soon as you say hallowed be thy name, they think of Halloween. That's as close as they get to hallowed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Who's thy? And what's a thy kingdom? Forgive us our trespasses. Oh, somebody's been going to somebody else's backyard. I mean, it doesn't mean the same as it did back when King was, James was king. King was James? <laughs> hey, it works both ways. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, I want steak, thank you very much. It doesn't make sense to people. And, and we wonder why people don't relate to the message. Because the trouble is that we've got excited about the message instead of the person behind the message. We've put holiness in the words of King, the King James Bible or even our own Bible, whether it's Eugene Peterson's message or whether it's the New Living Translation or whatever. There is no holiness in the version. There is holiness in the people it's, person it speaks of. And the, diff, the only difference in versions of the Bible is how well it lets you understand who that person is. I didn't mean to get into a talk about Bible translations. Um, but it's just another one of those distractions. But we've enjoyed a period in our society where Christianity has been accepted and embraced. We are entering and already in a phase where Christianity is becoming demonized. We are becoming a minority. We are falling out of favor with the culture of this world. And we're bemoaning it. Look, just think and be thankful for the fact that there are no lions and Colosseums and we are not being thrown in there. Because that's how the church started. With huge persecution. They were, they were not given concessions. They were not allowed to rent buildings and, and claim GST and sort of their, their, uh, the, the words of God weren't incorporated into the Roman law. Oh yes, Jesus said this, let's just have that. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer when we meet for the Senate. And tell Julius Caesar we don't like the way he does things. None of that happened. You, you mentioned the fact that you were a Christian and it was the lions. And the lions weren't Christians. <laughs> but they'd eat anything. And so instead of bemoaning what the world is throwing at us, instead of being distracted by the fact that we are called upon to take on board political, moral and ethical beliefs that may not be congruent with the word of God. Instead of being distracted by that, I think Jesus in this passage of scripture is teaching us as well as he taught the disciples that we need to stick close to him. We need to watch what Jesus is doing. We need to know what Jesus is telling us in his word. And we need to be fixed on that, not distracted by the, the yeast of culture in the world of spiritual distractions in the world we are followers of jesus christ let us be good followers of jesus christ let us change the world through our faith not by our arguments not by our discussions about morality not by sort of standing up for what we believe in so that we create a, a separate church and and 
country. We're not called to wall ourselves up. We're actually called to go out and infiltrate society and be Jesus to other people. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that your word this morning, this, this teaching that you laid on the disciples 2,000 years ago is just as powerful and current for us today. That here you have called all of us to actually be ministers in your church. To actually be your representatives here on earth. None of us are here as spectators. We are all called to walk in faith. We are all called to be the face of Jesus Christ for the people around us. So Lord, I pray the presence and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit in every single person here. I thank you, Lord, that we don't rely on our strength, our wits, our speech to convince people. But we rely on your strength, your gentleness, your love, your compassion that works through us to show people that they are created by a loving God. That they are protected by a loving God. That they are the children of a loving God. And Lord, I pray that that strength, that spirit within us speaks louder than we can. weaves itself into our speech, it weaves itself into our actions. It's part of our very life. Holy Spirit transforms in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might be here this morning and you might be thinking, well that, that's not me. I don't actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ because I've I've never thought of myself as either being worthy enough to have one. It's amazing the number of people who hear about Jesus and think, well, he was so good, he'd, wouldn't, he'd want nothing to do with me. But I've done things in my life that Jesus would never forgive me for. So I, I, I can't be a follower of Jesus because I'm just too bad. Or you may think, well, I don't need Jesus, I'm just too good. I know people who have thought that. Why do I need Jesus? My life is really good. I, 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 I'm not one of these people who, who wants to come before God and say, I'm such a wretched person, I need you. I, I feel really good about myself. That's great. Jesus loves that sort of pe person. But he says, okay, you're feeling good about yourself. Your, your grasp on life, your enjoyment of life ends when you die. You might be sailing very well now. It's a bit like the guy who jumped off the Empire State Building. Halfway down, 
He said to himself, well, it all seems to be going all right so far. But when you hit the bottom, when you hit the end of your life, what happens for eternity? See, our relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't end the day we die. Jesus has an eternal plan for every single one of us. But to be a part of that plan, we have to invite him into our lives. Say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to be a follower, a Christ follower from this point on. I'm going to hear your voice. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to be your representative here on earth. And all it requires is a, is a step, a first step to making a journey with Jesus for the rest of your life. And I want to invite you, if, ne- if you've never taken that step, if you've never stepped out and said, okay, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and the Saviour of my life, I'm going to give you a chance to do that this morning. You may have done it in the past, but if you sit here and honestly think about it, you're not living that life. You may have said it, your mind may have accepted it, but you know that in your heart and in your actions, you're not living it. Well, guess what? Jesus wants to invite you back. The path that he walks is always there. And if we fall off the path, there's always an invitation to come back on. And you can pray the same prayer to invite Jesus into your life. So can I get everybody just to bow your heads, close your eyes, and while nobody's looking around, if you want to give your life to Jesus or just rededicate it this morning because you've moved away from him, I want you to put your hand up right now so that I can see it while nobody's looking around. And I'd love to pray a prayer with you to invite Jesus into or back into your life. Thanks, I see that hand. Anybody else want to do that? Okay, I'm going to ask you if you'll all stand up. I'm going to ask us all to pray this together. Now I'm going to ask if that person who put their hand up would be really bold and actually just walk out here and pray that prayer with me. Would you do that for me? Would you come out and pray? Bring a friend if you're nervous about it. Perhaps not. Okay. I want you all looking at me and I want you all to pray this prayer together. Lord Jesus, from this moment, I turn away from my old life and I take a step towards you to accept you as my Lord and as my Savior. Today, I become a follower of Christ. I reject the devil. I accept that I am a child of God from this moment forward. And Lord, I give you thanks for my salvation. Amen.
You may be seated. Now I'll just get the service leader to give you some final reminders. Don't forget next Sunday, Pastor Bruce will be here and he is going to be on fire because he's been very close to the gates of hell and uh, I think he's been singed. So come along for that. And also don't forget, we're going to take up a love, love offering for them, which is going to be awesome. Um, if you've got children here, don't forget to sign them out before 10 to 12. Um, if you need prayer for anything, and I do mean anything, uh, then Denton and Loretta are going to be out here for the next 10 minutes and they would love to pray for anything you want to bring before God. So avail yourself of that. If you don't need prayer, then what you do need is a coffee or a cup of tea and a cake, and they will be available up the back. Have a blessed Sunday and an incredible week.